Hello and welcome to Dark News Radio Darkling number 26. The Darkling Podcast, of course, is a sister show to Dark News Radio where we explore in-depth topics into the world of darkness and also explore other game systems. Tonight, of course, I'm uh, your host, Mike, and I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, good. Um, it seems like awesome has officially arrived where I am. It has been pretty much rain, rain, and rain. Yeah, good. Um, uh, I'm quite happy, yeah, because I've actually had my first session uh, back role-playing this week. So uh, I ran a bit of Vampire, so I'm quite happy. Awesome. And I've been reading a certain book, so uh, we'll get into that very soon. Indeed. And in the right corner, we've got Simon Berman. How's it going, Simon? Uh, good. Now, Simon is the uh, community manager and a writer for Privateer Press, who are very well known for their Iron Kingdoms role-playing game. Uh, which just had a new edition released, and also the Hordes and War Machine tabletop miniatures games. That is uh, absolutely correct. I'm one of the staff writers and uh, the community coordinator there, so uh, I have a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. So uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the new Iron Kingdoms role-playing game, but before we get started with that, uh, Simon, could you give us a little bit of your uh, your geek cred? Uh, sure. Uh, I've been playing RPGs since 1993, so almost 20 years, which is sort of an alarming thing to say out loud for the first time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So sort of back, uh, would have been second edition D&D, and then I, uh, I played an awful lot of uh, vampire games over the most of the late 90s, which is probably uh, the RPGs I played the most of. Um, played a bunch of miniatures games, I've uh, been playing tabletop games pretty much since 1993 off and on. Um found uh, War Machine as a player back in 2006. Uh, shortly thereafter, I was a press ganger, which is one of our volunteers. And uh, not too long after that, I moved out from New York to Seattle, where uh, I now work at the company. We're going to have to, at some point in the future, pick your brains on uh, on your um, gaming background with Vampire, but we'll, let's uh, <laughs> definitely talk about, um, about the main thing, which, as Mike said, we have this new edition of Iron Kingdoms, which I picked up Ooh, earlier this week, and it's very, very big, and it's very pretty. And um, yeah, it definitely has a new book smell, which I've not enjoyed much recently because I've been buying PDFs. So, um... oh, right. <laughs> um, cool. yeah, we're pretty excited to have the new RPG out. Um, Privateer, you know, actually, we actually got our start with the Iron Kingdoms as a D20 supplement uh, back in, I guess, 2000. The company's uh, we've been around 12 years now. Yeah, uh, that was long before my time. Uh, mm-hmm. clearly, but uh, many of the people involved are still here. Matt Wilson, our founder, uh, still runs the company, and he's highly involved in the uh, the creative direction. Jason Souls, who's the lead developer of War Machine, he's been here since the, pretty much the beginning as well. Um, so, uh, you know, there was a long period of time where we were doing the RPG, and we had the, the Iron Kingdom's character guide and world guide, uh, and of course the Witchfire Trilogy, which were, I, I believe, our first supplements, um, which is a D20 campaign which acted not just as a sort of D&D campaign, but also as a kind of a setting primer for the Iron Kingdoms as it was being developed. Um, so uh, you know, we really had our roots as a role-playing game company, although War Machine, our uh, miniatures game, was being developed more or less in tandem at that point. Uh, mm. But for various reasons, the RPG came out first. But those two things were informing each other's development all the time. Uh, eventually, uh, it made sense for us to focus more on War Machine and its sister game, Hordes. Uh, which are, of course, set in the same world of the Iron Kingdoms, uh, but various things, uh, including the uh, the end of the OGL, uh, the new edition of Dungeons & Dragons, made it make sense for us to sort of uh, slow down on that and then start uh, 
surprising the situation for coming up with our own core version of uh, of the Iron Kingdom's rules, uh, which was a really cool thing for us because in a lot of ways the the D twenty setting, um, or rather the D twenty system didn't entirely speak to the kind of world and gameplay we wanted. Uh, yeah, so I it... I was going to say I know exactly the same thing when you said about how um, with the with the end of it, it kind of it it you that need to jump ship and i've i've experienced that with other role play games that were around that time so i totally uh understand the need to do that yeah i i think even if uh things hadn't gone down that way we probably would have gone this route eventually anyway just because mm. uh we really did want to have a game system that would let us play the game we saw it in our heads uh mm. you know when i came on in 2008 some of the first writing I did for Privateer was uh, in our magazine for uh, no, no Quarter Magazine, and uh, I did some of the last D20 supplements or supplemental articles we wrote um, on Warjack factories, and it was it was most, it was more background heavy than gameplay stuff. Uh, um, but even then, you know, we were discussing what we'd like to see in the system, uh, how we could do things uh, more true to our vision. Indeed. Mm, but I think it's important to bring up that uh, the fact that Iron Kingdom started off with the D20 system right as it exploded really, I think, helped out Privateer Press as a company and helped really just get the setting and the ideas out there. Oh, yeah. No, I think it was a great move for a number of reasons, although um, I'm sort of hesitant to speak too much about the old days just because it was, uh, you know, a solid eight years before I started working at Privateer. Right. Uh, but maybe one of these days we'll get somebody who, uh, like Doug Seacat, would be a great guy to talk about because he was involved in some of the original setting stuff, and uh, he's still our lead writer and uh, one of our main continuity guys. Hmm? Ah, great. Good stuff. So, yeah, let's talk about the uh, the new book and, and kind of the, the overarching structure and ideas that uh, go along with it. So uh, I think probably the most critical thing is that... Uh, the fact that combat specifically takes place with miniatures, just like in the Hordes More Machine tabletop games. Um, there's more detail, obviously, but it really has the same basic engine driving it. Uh, I think this is a great idea, by the way. A lot of cool RPGs have done this before. Classically, you've got, uh, you've got Mech Warrior in the Time of War for the, the Battletech uh, board game, which sure. that's the, the RPG system. Uh, you've got Heavy Gear as well, did kind of the same thing marrying both the tabletop game and the rpg originally i don't know if they still just as a side note i don't know if they still publish rpg material for that game um yeah anyway and uh of course <clears throat> there's a uh, this dungeons and dragons which did the same thing <laughs> <laughs> i've heard about that yeah um yeah no actually you know uh original D came out of wargaming and uh you know uh i think our game is slightly distinguished from other games that when you when you do choose to use it um tactical miniatures portion of it you you, uh, you use a tape measure although we obviously any range in the game is also made, can, can be transferred into feet uh one inch equals six feet approximately um but you know we we, we use the tape measure ruler for uh, for combat and uh it's been sort of funny uh conventions and stuff seeing some of like the you know the old school gamers their eyes kind of light up and they get uh memories of you know very early dungeons and dragons games where you did the same thing excellent yeah because um i mean having read through the um, the initial uh, starter PDF that's available on on the privateer site, and gone through the, like reading the combat system, um, I, I I'm having trouble to see um, to even realise how much has changed because like my experience of War Machine is back with first edition kind of Prime, and so I'm just wondering how much should I look out for in like the evolution of the combat system and the mechanics from the actual tabletop war game? 
Uh, sure. You know, I think we, we use the core of War Machine to make our RPG rules, although we added a lot of granularity to it to make it make sense as a role-playing game and give players the sort of individual and meaningful choices on the tabletop that they would want from their individual character and not sort of, you know, a nameless, faceless uh, grunt in the in the war game. So, well, I can't think of, I can't think of too many specific places we've changed it or, or broad places we've changed it. There's lots of details that have been changed. Mm. And I would, I would actually strongly recommend that if you're a War Machine player and you're coming over to the RPG, read the rules very carefully because some abilities may have the same name and the same basic idea, but they may function a little bit differently. You know, and there are some standard, there's some standardization that we added to the RPG. Uh, for example, characters can charge through each other, uh, through friendly characters, uh, things like that that you normally you would are uh, exceptions to the rules in War Machine. But again, you know, one of the things we really do is that we, we like the core mechanics of War Machine. We understand them really well because we've been perfecting them for almost a decade now. In fact, it'll be yeah. more, 10 years of War Machine is next year. So it's a, it's a mechanical system that we really understand and our developers really had their heads wrapped around. So it made sense for us to, to sort of transfer it over. Um, as well, you know, a lot of the, the way we see the Iron Kingdoms, the, 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 the gameplay of it comes out of War Machine and Hordes. So it was just a question of sort of adding the, the detail orientation to it to make it, uh, to make it an RPG. Um, and you know, we had some pretty interesting new systems we've added as well, like the feet point system. Uh, every character starts the game with three feet points, and these can be used to do things like uh, heroic dodges or to get an extra die to roll on your attack. Um, and you get them back for doing things like rolling critical successes, for uh, destroying enemies, uh, or at the GM's uh, discretion. So, uh, ah. it's, it's yeah, I was going to say, that's, because... that seemed, when I read that, the uh, feet points, I was immediately taken back to um, uh, the stunting in Exalted. I just got the same kind of feel of like, it's basically telling you, use them to do cool things and if you do cool things you'll get them back as well so it really it really promotes players to 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 take risks and to describe cool stuff and yeah you know, absolutely add, add some like you know rather than just hanging back and like carefully hoarding your resources for something this instead is like you know actually use them and beat the the living snot out of something and just or describe in wonderful graphic detail how it's happening and then you know, if it all works out cool, then you'll get more back. You can do even more crazy stuff. So I really like that. It basically just, you know, it promotes really um, ballsy kind of uh, gameplay and storytelling. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that uh, I advise, I always advise uh, new players with is uh, use your feed points uh, because the combat is actually, it's, it's a very potentially deadly game. Um, it's quite easy <laughs> if you're not using your feed points to uh, to have a bad run where uh, things don't go so well for you, but if you're using them and you, you should be gaining more, it's kind of an economy that you, you really want to be be spending them. And uh, the throughput of feet points is really important to having a good time with the game. Um, but again, you know, good planning is always going to help you out in RPG. If you know if you get the jump on the bad guys, there's a lot of uh, situational <laughs> benefits that will you'll have there. So uh, I wouldn't advise people to rush into blindly into combat and start you know flinging feet points around willy nilly. But uh, they're there to give you an edge or to make you able to uh, be sure that your next attack is probably going to hit. Cool. And another thing to bring up about this system, just kind of a, a, another broad, overarching thing, uh, for people that haven't played Hordes and War Machine, is it's basically a, a 2d6 bell curve system. So you have uh, you roll 2d6, add your stat, and then compare it to a target number, which may be like an opponent's defense or maybe a set target number uh, from the storyteller or game master. Um, but the cool thing is that if, if it looks like you're going to have to get like a 10 or something on 2d6, uh, there are some cases where you can actually boost that mm. and you throw in another die, so you roll 3d6 instead, which uh, increases your chances. And that kind of adds some, um, 
kind of currency to the game and, and uh, you know, gives you some extra options uh, as you're going through when playing. So that's pretty cool as well. And, and I'm always a big fan of 2D6 systems, especially uh, since I've become a really huge Baltic fan in the last couple of years. Uh, it's always good to see. Yeah, it's a really fast system. I mean, it's it's anyone that's not played War Machine, as far as tabletop games concerned, uh, war gaming wise, War Machine is is as long as you're playing like say with the 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 typical kind of like battle groups, is incredibly like fast to play and rewarding. And so to see see um, the rule system being used for a role play game just fills me with glee that I can get through lots of uh, exciting combat nice and quickly yeah i think the combat resolves very fast um you know i, I think uh, almost surprisingly fast for some rpg players which uh, is nice for me because i think you know the, the combat's satisfying and you get to do a lot of very cool things but you're not going to spend a lot of time you know consulting charts or tables to figure out how it works yeah. um, there's no there's no roll to hit then roll to dodge then roll to damage then roll to soak and then roll to do something else and then something else triggers it's all kind of you know it's all in the one in the one role and yeah that's one of the strengths that i thought went into new world of darkness when that came out and it's nice to see that same that same thing carrying over into uh also being in iron kingdoms and carrying over from the uh the war game because i hate rolling too many things for for a single combat resolution no we have it pretty streamlined it's uh you know you roll to hit you roll your damage and uh generally that's that's it um a lot of characters will have you know sort of passive abilities and benefits yeah. that will make them harder to hit but uh, that tends to interact on uh, all in one player's turn, so there isn't there isn't a lot of back and forth there, which makes things very streamlined. Which was one of the things when when we were when we were releasing our second edition of War Machine in 2010, um, streamlining was a big thing for us because we had a lot of abilities that were very similar and had similar effects, but different names and slightly different wordings, and we we took a lot of trouble to go back and make all of that language consistent. So, you know, I think it's interesting. One of the things we found uh, since we released the game is a lot of players. Um, I wouldn't say a lot of players, but a certain percentage of players come on our forums and they ask questions about the rules, and um, in a lot of cases, they're actually overthinking uh, the implications of the rules, when in fact, if you read them literally as they're written, that's exactly how they're expected to be um, uh, played out. So it's, it's, I think people are some sort of often surprised by how clear our rules actually are and how literal they are. Good stuff. Cool, and uh, we've talked enough about combat, and I do have one other broad question and uh simon i've seen you kind of answer this a little bit on uh on rpg.net um so there's there's no social stat in the game which uh is a little surprising and it's definitely confused a lot of people could you kind of talk about like some of the design discussions that you guys had because that seems like it's a quite a departure from uh a lot of rpgs these days sure uh basically we didn't want to have a single social stat um because we felt it creates the kind of play where one character makes the character who is your social guy or your face. And he, you know, his dump stat becomes strength or something that other characters wouldn't use. And whenever your char- your party gets into some kind of social altercation, uh, the face character is often able to, despite being often considered the role-playing character, often totally circumnavigates the role-playing by saying, well, I make my negotiation role. I automatically succeed because, you know, my, my numbers are so good on this and we can move on to the next fight. And it, it's sort of an odd counterintuitive thing I've noticed in a lot of role-playing games over the years where that that social stat actually discourages role-playing because mechanically the game supports one character or a, a number of characters 
maxing a stat to just sort of get what they want instead of having to you know role play out negotiations and stuff. So our take on that was that we while we have I think ten plus um, sort of social skills like negotiation, uh, bribery, seduction, etc. The stat you use is situational, determined by you and the uh, the game master at the time of it coming up. So, for example, if your character is trying to intimidate somebody, uh, if they're in a city, your character might choose intellect to come up with a sort of particularly cutting and underhanded threat. You know, this is a really nice business you've got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. And in that case, you'd add the intellect to the role. Uh, alternately, say, a big burly trollkin, he might not want to uh, go that route. And so he's going to just, you know, flex his muscles look menacingly at his axe, and he's going to roll um, his strength as his intimidation roll. And this allows the player and the GMs, who have to agree on everything in these cases, but to make, uh, to, to at least at least basically describe the route they're taking on the social role, um, the circumstances of it, and uh, what the appropriate response is. And, you know, in some cases it doesn't make sense, because, you know, a character who has a very high poise, um, you know, might be impressive and well-spoken, but that's not going to impress a bunch of Thrawn barbarians who are much more going to be much more likely to be impressed by the Trollkin and his strength. Cool. That's that. Yeah, that all makes uh, that's all great. I mean, I have I have absolutely no problem with that. That's um, I think really a good route forward. Because I mean, again, as you said, it means even the Trollkin character who, in a more classic system, would be considered the bit of the uncouth kind of per- character is useful in the right context. You know, they are the one that you send up to to intimidate a whole gang of people, but they're certainly not the person you then use if you need to be have a li- some more tact. So it means all characters are useful in the right social scenario. Right, and better cool. yet, the troll can, can still be intimidating and make that kind of social role without having um, compromised his ability in combat, which is probably what that player is most interested in doing. Yeah, yeah. Cool, good stuff. Hey, um... Chris, you've you've got the book. Have you read through the uh, archetypes and careers a little bit? Oh, I've I've not really. I've been reading through the history section because I found that area um, a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more compared to when I read uh, War Machine Prime. So obviously things have been developed and added in. Especially I think a lot more to do with the um, the early history and things to do things that occurred before the Orgoth turned up. But um, why? What did you want? What What were you particularly wanting to ask? Well, I mean, I guess we can ask Simon because he's right here. Um, Simon, yeah. could you talk about the archetypes and careers and kind of the uh, flexibility that it brings to character creation? Sure. When we first started developing the game, one of the things we found was that uh, the 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 careers we were looking at were not quite um, they weren't broad enough. And when we started broadening them, they started becoming too dilute and didn't make a whole lot of sense. One of our goals was to make the kind of hybrid and interesting and almost, you know, patched together characters that the Iron Kingdoms is famous for. Uh, and we realized that limiting ourselves to one career was not enough, so we actually made it so that your character actually, you actually choose two careers at character creation. And these careers can be anything from soldier or to highwayman to investigator to warcaster, uh, etc. And uh, some of these things have prerequisites, some are limited to race, um... But the combinations of careers, there's literally hundreds of them that are available to a starting character, and you can make a really unique and very... Um, a character that really feels like he's part of the Iron Kingdoms. And as well as part of that, we have what are called archetypes. You choose one archetype at creation that's either skilled, intellectual, mighty, or gifted, gifted being uh, our magic users. And those give you access to some very powerful abilities. Uh, you gain more of those as your character increases in experience. Uh, and some careers are tied to specific... Uh, Archetypes, for example, Warcaster is a gifted archetype, um, 
and you have to have that archetype to have it. So there are a few number of ways that cla- that uh, career archetype and race all interact to uh, make characters that make sense for the Iron Kingdoms. Yeah, because I mean, um, I've just looking over the list. So you, obviously, um, you said you've gone through the archetypes there, and that um, you know some of them, some of the careers, as I said, gifted for like arcane mechanic or arcanist, but um, also some have uh, required uh, race, which which really means you can like, for example, you could you could get some really interesting combinations where you say have the pirate aristocrat or or um, uh, an explorer pff, uh, gun mage, Dep- you know, and they kind of it, it's the thing that I, I've also noticed that um, towards the back of the section of character creation, you also have the um, you have some uh, group templates um, essentially. Yeah, and so they give you suggestions of you know your your group should include at least you know each character should be say in the case of the pirates of the broken coast a cutthroat an explorer or a military officer or a pirate or a thief and again I think having enough of those combinations means you can make quite a colourful um, history for your character or at least um, make it plausible for how they've collected quite a an interesting collection of skills. Um, I think um, I think it's a real strength to it, rather than just being limited to one career. Oh uh, yeah, uh, the adventuring companies. That was actually one of my uh, one of my few development uh, babies in this book. I'm primarily <laughs> I wrote the, uh, the wrote, wrote setting material, but uh, and, you know one of the things was we wanted to have the the setting is I think you know the, the the real jewel of our game, and it's it's what makes people want to play Iron Kingdoms over you know another fantasy role playing game is that we have this um, you know extravagantly detailed world. So the adventuring companies are ways for players. To, for, to encourage players to make groups of characters that make sense. Now, there's nothing stopping you from making a group with, you know, two Trollkin, a Gobber, an Iosin, and uh, an Ogren. But mm. uh, that's not necessarily, you know, a very common sight in the Iron Kingdom. So we, we have these, the adventuring companies give you incentive uh, by giving your group extra skills, sometimes extra abilities, uh, but limit the, the choices of uh, careers and races available to you. Uh, for example, the, uh, the Arcane Order one, is uh, you know your characters or members are sort of a, a guild or a small uh, you know arcane order like the uh, the fraternal order of wizardry or the gray lord's covenant although we'll be revisiting both of them in book two which uh, we're currently in the midst of writing in the very broad sense you know the gifted characters who have the gifted archetype in the arcane order are they're the uh, the full members of the the order and other characters are, are expected to be their bodyguards and retainers and stuff and uh, in this case you know the characters actually get to start out with a small uh, guild house. Uh, anybody, any of the gifted characters uh, get um, the Arcane Scholar ability. Everybody gets a mm. level of the Arcane Lore ability. And non-gifted characters get uh, the Shield Guard ability because they're the bodyguards. So this way you <laughs> kind of have, you get around the aspect of like, how do our characters know each other? It's, it's laid out for you at the beginning. Hmm. Good stuff. All right. I think it's time that we start talking about the setting. Yeah, we've teased you enough. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> wow, the Iron Kingdoms, it's It's huge even beyond the Iron Kingdoms as well, because the Iron Kingdoms is just a, a small portion of uh, Western Imarin, and uh, the uh, War Machine Hordes games uh, go beyond that as well. Um, Simon, could you... I know this is going to be really tough, but could you give like the uh, the basic tenets <laughs> of, of the Iron Kingdoms and like what are the, the cool things that people will first notice? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a tall order. But uh, I think... <laughs> I think the uh, the first thing people are going to see about the Iron Kingdoms is that it's a world where magic and technology uh, are not at war, but you know supplement each other, uh, and that's through uh, the art of what's called mechanica. 
And the idea is that magic is very dangerous and hard to use. And, uh, in fact, humanity was only given the gift of magic a few hundred years earlier to, uh, when they, uh, well, more than a few hundred years earlier, but uh, a relatively short time ago, um, as a gift of the goddess Thamar, who negotiated a uh, questionable bargain with unknown parties to give them uh, the ability to overthrow uh, an occupying force called the Orgoth, who had been uh, oppressing humanity for hundreds and hundreds of years. So because of that, she get, she gave them what was called uh, sort of an incomplete arcane alphabet. So there actually, magic isn't like it is in a lot of other fantasy settings. It has very rote and um, specific uses. And characters can certainly experiment with it. You know, uh, arcane geniuses in the world have, you know, a much deeper theoretical notice. But for the most part, you aren't going to see utility magic like you do in other settings. But what happens there is uh, because magic is difficult to use and because technology has limits, a lot of arcanists find ways to use one to sort of patch out the problems in the other. And that's where Mechanica comes in. One of the biggest expressions of Mechanica, most obvious ones, is the Steam Jack which is a big steam-powered robot with a, uh, a magical brain called a cortex. And the cortex is a, a piece of mechanica that's uh, sort of unsurpassed. You know, there's, there's, no, there's, no piece of, there's no pure use of magic that can even come close to uh, the complexity and sophistication of the, of the cortex. And uh, these things are manufactured, and steam jacks are used for you know, labor, and uh, militarized ones are called war jacks, and they're some of the, uh, the most deadly engines of war uh, in all of Western Emirates. So Mechanica is probably the uh, one of the big pillars of the setting. After that, we've got you know our, our nations of the Corvus Treaties, which are the nations that arose after the Orgoth occupation and uh, immediately fell to uh, disputing their borders. Uh, we set the game in the year 608 AR after Rebellion. And uh, we have an ongoing meta plot that we update in War Machine and Hordes, but we didn't want to have that overshadow the role-playing games. We want, we want players to tell their own stories and not feel that they have to uh, slavishly be devoted to the ongoing story in War Machine and Hordes. So 608 AR made sense for us, because in our ongoing story, it's only two years before the, uh, the present in War Machine, but it's at a time of relative ceasefire and, uh, and temporary peace treaties between the nations, which means things are very tense between the countries, but uh, it's a good time for adventuring. So those are some of the big things, I think. Uh, you know, we have our different nations... They're all uh, they're all pretty fleshed out, and in fact, you know, we're we're working on book two, which gets into uh, extreme detail on the five the four nations of the Corvus Treaty, which is Signar, Cador, Ord, uh, the fallen country of Lael, which uh, was invaded by Cador a few years earlier, and the Protectorate of Menoth, which is not one of the original Corvus Treaty nations, but is effectively one of the modern Iron Kingdoms, and uh, we are writing. Uh, huge amounts of history for those right now. In fact, uh, as soon as I finish this, in this interview, I'm going to go back and uh, go back to, re to writing uh, my first draft of the history of Ord, which uh, will hopefully be the last chapter in the book. Wow. Cool. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you have more specific questions, I'd be happy to answer, but otherwise I'm just going to ramble endlessly because uh, I could talk about <laughs> well, this probably for the next six hours. I was going to pick out some things which, um, so having read the first section of the history of the main setting part in the book which is all the all the history that brings us up to the present in in the setting and things that kind of stick out are the things that make it not like many of like the vast majority of other fantasy settings out there and in my mind there are a few you know i like the fantasy settings that make enough enough strides to push them away from a tolkien-esque you know typical fantasy setting so for me i found interesting that elves are not the oldest race and also the interaction between them and their gods and humanity and and the gods of humanity and the same thing again with like the um the cricks and the and just the undead again 
um, it, it's the the uh, more relative, relatively speaking, a more uh, a newer problem to the world rather than being some truly uh, ancient evil empire of undead or something like that. So I was just going to say, what other things would you pick out or you want to expand on uh, the conscious decisions to make certain elements of the setting quite unique from other fantasy settings out there? I think in a lot of cases, that's just right because we have, you know, we things that seem like they'll be a cool idea, not necessarily for the sake of doing something new. Um, but, you know, we, we liked our elven idea because, you know, our elves, even though they were actually, uh, their gods made them after humanity, uh, their gods did so because they felt they could improve upon humanity. So you mm. know, it's, it's <clears throat> the idea that the elves are still sort of superior to humans is there. It's just been um, how they got there has been inverted. And uh, they're rather upset with humanity because they, uh, a certain faction called the Retribution of Syra within the Iosin government believes that a lot of their uh, recent problems over the last seven or eight hundred years stem from magic, from uh, the use, the the gift of magic that humanity gained at the end of the Orgoth occupation. They think that's what sickened their gods and made uh, their children start being born without souls. So you know, some of those, we, we, some of those Tolkien ideas and you know, classic fantasy tropes are there. We've just tried to you know do things that seem like an interesting new twist on them. Uh, mm. You know, again, like you know, I think magic and technology they coexist in a lot of settings, but we wanted to have that not necessarily at war, but you know, two sort of two different paths to the same goal that, you know, um, converge synergistically. Yeah, yeah. No, I really do like the, the as you say, the subversion of classic fantasy tropes in there. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the whole, of course, magic and technology being married together rather than being conflicting paths is is great. And I think, uh, I'm just saying, there, there's other fantasy settings out there that are quite a big proponent of and enjoy so um you know i always like something that gives me something new to uh get my teeth into um what whatever highlights would you say that um that also kind of make it different to a traditional fantasy game um i was thinking maybe how magic works um as i said you say it's a far more um far more almost scientific approach to magic rather than rather than you know wizards kind of just just learning and experimenting it's it's very rigidly um uh developed yeah uh, i mean even sorcerers who devent who uh you know develop their powers rather simultaneously they have uh, access to relatively limited sets of uh, skill pools um and i think you know we, we have two kinds of casters we have uh, our will weavers who are the the most common uh arcanists and uh, they can uh, in the game, they can mechanically cast extra spells or extend the power of their spells by gaining fatigue, and if they gain too much fatigue, they overexert themselves and can't cast for a round of combat. On the flip side, we have our uh, our focusers, which right now are uh, only represented by warcasters, who are um, they have sort of a more intuitive control of magic. Um, they always have a set amount of what are called focus points that they can use to cast their spells, but and they can't overextend themselves like a will weaver will. But they can use these for a broader variety of things. They can use them to cast spells. They can use them to uh, instinctively control warjacks. Um, they can bond with uh, mechanical weapons and get extra boosted dice of damage and things like that. So I think um, the way our actual uh, arcanists use uh, the arcane is a little different than you find in a lot of other settings. And I think another uh, thing to point out is you know, we, have, we are very big on, uh, on gunpowder, or blasting yeah. powder, as it's called in the Iron Kingdoms. So uh, you know, you'll see the, the classic fighter of uh, you know fantasy role-playing games who has a sword and armor, uh, he's still there in the Iron Kingdoms, but he's probably packing a pistol as a backup as well. Hmm, yeah. 
Um, and that actually brings us to something I think quite important because um, you know it's I think it's quite easy for people maybe to to look at the setting and think oh it's steampunk but I really don't think it is and oh it's just fantasy with steam power or with guns because I looking at the the artwork and the style of it I would put it uh, akin to say it's almost kind of like if the Napoleonic warfare was all conducted with you know magical pistols and giant robots and um that's the feel that that i get from the game and really the look that i imagine for um for the stories i want to tell so uh, is that close to how you see it or uh, i think what i'm getting is uh what kind of like real world uh elements would you use to help players and people new to the game to like color their their um to kind of like paint the setting uh it's interesting actually that's a great question um we draw from a lot of different time periods, and we try to find the the parts of history and the real world that sort of complement each other, even if there's there's big you know gaps of time. Mm-hmm. And while I would I would not say we have a a you know simply steampunk setting, there are aspects of steampunk that appear in it. You know, we have our steam powered warjacks and you know steam powered uh, personal armor in some cases, but we're not really we're, we're definitely not limited to the Victorian era. In fact, you know, I, yeah, I'd say yeah, we, yeah. We draw very heavily, like you stated, upon the, uh, the Napoleonic era as far as the look of some of our things, all the way up to World War One. In some cases, you know, our trencher Signarin unit, our Signarin mm, trench yeah, unit, they, they've yeah. got their trench warriors. You know, they the soldiers, they uh, they have rifles with bayonets. Um, you know, they're wearing sort of light armor. Um, they've got you know a very British doughboy look to them in some ways. Um, you know, on the other hand, we have Kador, which yeah. has kind of a, a Soviet aesthetic. You know, it's got red armor and a, a yellow sigil. But their actual mode of government and lifestyle is actually, it's really quite similar to Imperial Russia in a lot of ways. It's not Soviet. They're not communists. They have an empress. Um, you know, they're, they're, they have sort of a pre-Soviet bureaucracy. I, I'm rather excited about Cato because we, we, we wrote their chapter for the new book uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, it was the first time I think we've really, really succeeded in portraying Cato as a living, breathing place. You know, all 18 of the, uh, the provinces are uh, Voloskaya, as they're called. Um, yeah, we got into the, the politics of Kador, um, you know, how the, the merchant princes, or the Kaazi, interact with uh, the great princes and the empress. And, you know, I think it, it has this real, you know, 19th century Russian feel, but not Victorian, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, we have other places like the Protector of Menoth, which has a very, um, you know, sort of, uh, they're a theocracy, so they have very, you know, religious overtones to the looks of their stuff. Um, so we kind of pick and choose what we think looks cool together. And what makes sense together, um, you know. Sometimes the uh, the contrast is actually you know what makes it interesting. But in a lot of cases, it's just because you know we, we uh, in our world it makes sense for our you know Napoleonic guys, halberdiers, and pistolmen to be fighting alongside a unit of, uh, of trench soldiers. Mm. And we uh, we strive to make those things look like they exist in the same world. And uh, it's sometimes it's not quite as much work as you'd think. It's it's interesting a lot of the places that history um, brushes up against itself. Oh yeah, I mean, you only have to uh, look at some of the uh, weaponry that was being developed, even in the um, oh, in the late Renaissance. You know, you'd have literally you know Gatling muskets. So you know, it's not too, it's, it's not too much uh, to imagine. Well, if you had a bit of magic in there, and you know, uh, a bit more time to play about with these things, or the right technologies come together, then you can see these weapons emerging but in a place that stylistically it seems out of place but actually it would be a natural extension of what 
was developed in the real world. So um, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's uh, very interesting about the Iron Kingdoms is that in a lot of ways, it's sort of, it's a world on the verge of, you know, um, a real industrial revolution. You know, mm. it's, 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 it's happening, but they're, you know, if you, if you move the setting forward 50 years, it might be a very different place. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting. One of the cool things about this thing is that we, we have this tension of, you know, everything's about to change, but, you know, it, it's, it's 5, 10, 15 years off. But, you know, from our modern standpoint, we can start, you can sort of say, oh, well, these guys are doing this. That's, that's probably going to lead to this thing. And what is that going to do to the, the balance of power? And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really fascinating to kind of uh, keep the world poised at this, uh, you know, this, this precipice of discovery and innovation. Yeah, because I mean, um, I even read in one bit, there's um, there's even a brief mention of, uh, I was waiting for it, I knew it would turn up somewhere in the history section, but of a um, of an airship or a dirigible. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing a bit more in some of the later books to do with the uh, technology and obviously what kind of um, <laughs> dangerous uh, air transport technology huh. has been developed. Oh, no, so far, it's only been done once, and uh, that was the uh, the deposed former king of Signar, a venture rail yeah. uh, escapes in what was essentially a hot air balloon, which uh, promptly crashed in the middle of the Bloodstone Desert. Uh, yeah. So it worked out for him, but it was very short-term and probably not the most uh, successful venture, but uh, who knows what the future will hold. Now, the other thing, so keeping on that theme, is, would you say, because um, this, this uh, again, kind of uh, keeping with the idea of inspiration, I've been really kind of racking my brains with stuff to suggest for people to kind of get into the field of running Iron Kingdoms or what to reference. And I think there's quite a few either books or music or, or movies or novels or computer games that have inspired you. So is there anything that that's kind of like you would suggest to people like, oh, if you watch that, you might get a bit of a feel for kind of the type of stories you could run in the setting or just to get the mood right or even just what music you think really fits for a soundtrack to to uh, someone's gaming session i mean it's it's a it's a big question you know one of the things i advise people is that uh, you know even the core book um especially the core book is it's it's a big setting and mm. i think it's uh it's probably a mistake to try and use all of it at once <laughs> yes <So>, yes <laughs> you know what, what i tell people is look at you know pick a corner of the world that you want to explore or a theme of the world that you want to explore and kind of build your game around that and look at the adventuring companies. We're going to be posting more of those, uh, you know, in future books and magazines. Um, and try and you know, narrow the focus of your game to you know. Well, I want to do. A, I want to set a game in uh, occupied Lael, and I want to be resistance fighters. And you know, what what is the theme of this? The theme is going to be desperate choices. And once I had a few ideas about that, that's when I would start looking for you know books and music and movie inspiration. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's there's a lot of good ways you could do that. I think you know, if just using the uh, the uh, Lily's resistance thing, you know, one way you could theme that is, you know, they're sort of behind enemy lines and you're know, conducting sort of strange espionage or, um, you know, uh, assassinations of Kidoran occupiers. And, you know, I might look to a movie like um, Munich for how a cell operates, mm. uh, you know, in, in secret. Um, or I might look for movies about the World War World War II and the French resistance for that kind of thing. And I, I think, um, you know, I would even look at Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I think it was, the, <laughs> was it the second or third season where they're... Uh, the, they have the silent occupation going on. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, uh, I think as I, we just finished writing the Lely's stuff last week, and uh, I think that was definitely an inspiration for parts of the stuff I wrote. Um, that sort of, you know, desperate uh, resistance cell. So, you know, I, I think those are three different sort of takes on a on a similar subject. And I, I would look, 
for inspiration, you know, what kind of story I wanted to tell and then go look for the movies and books that, that speak to that. And I, w- I would definitely look outside of fantasy fiction for it, because I think there's oh, yeah. a lot of really good real-world stuff that, you know, you're, you're really going to draw upon. And that's that's where our core ideas often come from, is, you know, actual history. And if you, you know, you look at real uh, heroes and villains from almost any era of history, you're going to find great things that make sense in the Iron Kingdoms. Because I was going to say, like, movies that have already kind of, like, um, the first movie that came to mind when I, like, Sort of flicking through Iron Kingdoms, and I re- read about um, the Kingdom of, of uh, Ord was like, yeah, you know, with all the swampy marsh grounds and everything. I was like, yep, I kind of need to rewatch um, uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf and the whole, you know, the myth of Gévaudan and um, you know yeah, people, uh, the hunter coming from Paris. And it's again, it's just like it immediately has that kind of look because you've got that kind of mix of of myth and and wariness of locals with some guys from the big city that have got you know some oh, muskets yeah, would... and yeah it, it, it just seemed kind of perfect for that yeah that that story in particular um i know jason souls is a, a huge fan of film uh i quite like it myself <laughs> so I, I i'm i guarantee you that there's that that film's dna shows up in a couple places in our game um and another and another one which i thought of which simply just has uh quite excellent visuals i mean you know obviously Pirates of the Caribbean for anything involving like the uh, the anything to do with pirates in the setting, sure. I think fits perfectly. And I think even for if you want to go a bit crazy like with with the weaponry, if you want to see weaponry taken to the extreme, was the most recent. <laughs> it depends how how much people like it. The uh, Three Musketeers movie. It again has insane levels of technology for the the set the historical setting it's meant to be. But I think acts as another good bit of inspiration for how you can go with like personalized weapons that have mechanical contraptions built in. Yeah, no, I think the, the uh, there are parts of the aesthetic of that film that are definitely yeah. uh, very Iron Kingdoms um, or would work in it. You know, I, I think the, the overall look of that movie is probably a little bit more um, <laughs> yeah. high fantasy than we'd be going for, but there's it's, it's yeah. there in places for sure. Is there any music you would have said that kind of, is there any particular bits of music you would have said that fits uh, either either the game in general or a particular region? Anything that people should look for? Oh, I'm probably a bad person to ask because I, I, listen, <laughs> to, uh, I listen to a lot of music when I write, so yeah. that stuff tends to be almost you know arbitrarily whichever albums I'm listening to when I'm writing a certain portion of the game uh, gets sort of stuck in my head, and that's, that's what I think of as the soundtrack for that region. So... I don't know how helpful all that would be for the average person's gaming table. Like, I, you know, I, think okay. I, I listened to Chelsea Wolfe's two albums back to back for days, driving my office make crazy uh, while writing Ord and Lail. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's kind of spooky. It's probably Ord's a pretty haunted place, so that could work in some places. But I don't know if the average gaming table is really going to find that to be very conducive to uh, rolling some dice. I absolutely think of uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor when I'm uh, playing or uh, writing anything Kadoran. So uh, yeah, that's pretty epic. <laughs> uh, Mike. Anything else you wanted to ask on to do the setting or? or... Oh boy, man, there's there's a lot. <laughs> so much. I've been, I've been uh, so so we set this up two weeks ago, and pretty much for the past two weeks in my free time, I've just been reading about the Iron Kingdoms. Jeez, I mean, gun mages are so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know what we should talk about? Because dragons, they're in like every fantasy setting, except for a couple. But dragons are way different in the Iron Kingdoms or or in the. And, and Imran. So, uh, Simon, could you kind of explain those a little bit and what's going on with them? Uh, sure. The uh, The first dragon uh, in Imran uh, is uh, Torok, or the Dragon Father. And uh, nobody's entirely sure how he came to be. Um, there's a lot of 
the few people who are sort of in the know on bigger cosmological issues think he uh, he may be from sort of outside of reality. Although that's obviously not something most people even think about. But um, wherever he came from, Torok showed up several thousand years ago and ran around the planet, uh, or ran around, at least around Western Imran. Um, he got bored after a time and decided that, you know, he needed somebody to talk to. So he decided to uh, create a brood by which he uh, he took out the uh, his Athank heart, which is basically a, a gigantic crystal, <clears throat> and uh, carved shards of it out, each of these shards giving birth to uh, a new dragon. Predictably, uh, they weren't too keen on Torek, and uh, they started warring with each other and eventually sort of formed an alliance to try and uh, devour him. Uh, since then, he, he killed a number of them and scouted the rest uh, into hiding places around the world. Now, Torek, I should point out, is when he's, he's large for a dragon. He's, you know, I don't know, probably a thousand feet tall, something like that. Uh, he's a big guy. And uh, after he uh, killed a number of his children and drove the rest into hiding, he flew off to the island of... Uh, the, the Shard Islands, uh, where he founded the Necromantic Empire of Crix, uh, where the few humans in Satixis, who are sort of our satyr women, uh, worship him as a god, and uh, the undead uh, are his favorite minions. Uh, that's where the uh, the Iron Liches of uh, Iron Kingdom's fame come from. Uh, since then, the other, <clears throat> the lesser dragons have been sort of plotting against him. Uh, they they're all keen, they'd all like to uh, sort of devour each other because anytime they do that, they gain the Athank of the other. So they all sort of hate and distrust each other, but they hate uh, Torok more. Um, and one of his children, uh, Ethrenbol, better known as Everblight, uh, recently founded his own army in an attempt to not only uh, eventually devour his father but all of his uh, siblings as well. And uh, that's one of our hordes factions, the Legion of Everblight, who are these uh, blighted. Uh, just by being near a dragon, you're exposed almost to like sort of a a, a soul poison or a you know a, a cancer of uh, of the the mind and body. And uh, Everblight's quite good at controlling this blight, uh, where he's uh, he's wrecked the Nis populate the Nis elves who were the winter elves lived in north. He's destroyed and sublimated most of their population, um, and uh, he's sort of a growing problem in the north that not everybody's figured out is even there yet. So uh, yeah, our dragons are they're a little different. Um, not something that you know the average adventuring party in the RPG is ever going to be able to prepare to deal with because they're they're forces of nature. Um, so uh, that's kind of our take on dragons. Cool, good stuff, good stuff. All right, I think that's uh, quite uh, quite a good detail on the uh, setting itself. Um, so I kind of want to ask Simon a little bit about uh, like wh- where the plans going forward. I, I know we have a couple of hardcover books coming out. Uh, definitely going to be some stuff in the No Quarter magazine from Privateer Press, but uh, uh, is there anything else you've got planned coming up? Uh, well, our basic thing is we have a, a set of four, uh, we're calling them core books, although the first book is all you actually need to play the game. The remaining three books, we're going to uh, take detailed looks at parts of the setting, add extra monsters, um, add additional playable content, but they're not they're not core rules, if that makes sense. Uh, but those four books uh, will be coming out over the next probably 18 months. Um, we're finishing up writing on the second one right now. I believe it is tentatively titled kings, nations, and gods, and that's going to examine the uh, the nations of the Corvus Treaties, being Signar, Cador, Ord, Occupied, Lael, and the Protectorate of Menoth, uh, with new with uh, new careers, gear, adventuring companies, all that good stuff, as well as extremely detailed uh, histories and uh, present-day looks at the setting. I think anybody who read our old Iron Kingdom's World Guide is going to be really happy with this book, because the, <laughs> uh, the level of detail we're getting into is much, much higher, as well as some really awesome new maps of the setting. Um, Hopefully that's going to be out in the spring of 2013. Uh, we're currently on track for that, so uh, that shouldn't be too far down the road. After that, book three is going to be uh, look at the wilderness of Western Imran, 
and that's going to introduce rules for warlocks and war beasts, uh, new players, and who control these giant beasts of, uh, of the wild, uh, as well as a whole bunch of new monsters. I think we're going to add some new playable races there uh, for people who want to play a, a game of old gator men or uh, bog trogs, things like that. Uh, we may, we're probably going to have rules for men. Did I hear yes. that right? Gator men. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty cool. I mean, and the idea with that is not that you're going to drop these gator men into your existing campaign. It's that you would. We're going to provide you know a way that if you want to tell a story about a gator man tribe and uh, their bog trog slaves out in the wilderness, um, <laughs> we're going to give you the tools to do that and play on the other side of the field. Um, we'll probably be doing the same with the Legion of Everblight, so you can play Legion warlocks and uh, bladedness and stuff. Because um, we think it's, you know, I think we, we've got all these very cool sort of alternate races and weird takes on fantasy and stuff. And while they're not part of the, uh, you know, the core Iron Kingdoms, um, they're still fun things for players to check out. And we're pretty excited to give people a chance to tell very different kinds of fantasy uh, world stories, you know, more tribal or wilderness based. Uh, the Druids of the Circle Orboros will be in that book, too. Um, mm. And then we're going to stuff it with a whole bunch of new monsters for uh, game masters to use. That's book three. Uh, I don't have dates on that yet. That's that's still a ways off. Yeah. And then book four, which will be the final of the, the core four books, is uh, going to take a look at the ancient empires of uh, of Western Emeryn, or actually of Emeryn, I should say. Those mm. being uh, the Nightmare Empire of Crix, uh, the uh, Dwarven Empire of Rule, the uh, Nation of Ios, who are elves, and uh, the Scorn Empire to the east. And again, we're going to introduce new playable content for all that. So if you want to play an all, a party of all scorn and you know take part in invading uh, the Iron Kingdoms, you'll be able to do that, or tell stories based in cricks, uh, things like that. So uh, that's our that's our core line of books. Um, beyond that, we're definitely going to be supporting the the game in every issue of No Quarter Magazine pretty heavily. Uh, new adventures, new articles. I just wrote a new article uh, myself, Jason Souls, and uh, one of uh, my forum moderators, Kyle Hagen. Uh, who's an engineer, wrote a, a brief but cool article explaining, you know, the logistics of using your Steam Jack, how much coal you need, uh, what does it cost to buy coal in bulk, um, you know, mm-hmm. how, do you get a, how do you get a Steam Jack from place to place across a large distance economically. Um, so we're going to be doing stuff like that. And then we actually, we're trying out our first uh, Iron Kingdoms uh, magazine supplement, which will be coming out in December uh, under No Quarter magazine. That's going to be nothing but Iron Kingdoms role-playing game content, and it's uh, called uh, Iron Kingdoms Urban Adventures. And it's going to have a whole bunch of uh, new articles, adventures um, that are going to detail uh, games, Iron Kingdom games set in the cities of Western Emory, or specifically of the Iron Kingdoms. So hopefully we're doing more stuff like that. Um, we've already published uh, a free PDF adventure uh, that was one of my babies, uh, Fools Rush In. Anybody who was at Gen Con may have had a chance to play that. Uh, if you go to privateerpress.com slash ironkingdoms slash downloads, you'll be able to find it there. Uh, and that's actually, it has full quick start rules pre-generated characters, new art, and a full adventure and all the player handouts you need uh, to run a game without even having the books. So if you want to check out the Iron Kingdoms, that's a great place to start. And hopefully we'll be doing more uh, more web stuff like that. And uh, before you guys ask, we are not currently publishing digitally, but we are very aggressively exploring digital publishing options. So uh, hopefully we'll have more to talk about on that in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, digital will be great because it's a heavy book. And, uh, <laughs> yes, it is. If, if the other's going to be like that, um, yeah, to have it have them available digitally will be a boom. That would be excellent. Um, and also, something I'll point out, because this came up in a, uh, a comment on Reddit about um, Iron Kingdoms, that one of the downloads you have available is actually more beasts and monsters that didn't make it into the core book. So oh, yes. there's, which is just useful for people to know. Um, 
on our downloads page. Uh, we have a whole bunch of we have character sheets, we have some uh, game master sheets, uh, extra monsters. We have bases you can print out, so you don't need to buy plastic bases to uh, to use your guys uh, in the game, and a bunch of just you know helpful things for uh, GMs and players alike. Ah, classic! You've, so you've actually got printable base, so just printable bases. So if you haven't got the relevant miniature or you haven't decided to invest in miniatures it's just gone i need miniatures for this combat because it's so freaking insane Correct. you can just brilliant that's awesome that is absolutely awesome i have memories of warhammer quest and thinking it's a pain when you don't have a monster or you don't have space and just knowing that you're supporting like people that may decide to use the um the actual miniature based uh route for combat that's great wow yeah, so no, we want to uh, we want to make it as easy for people to get into as possible. Um, you know, I think people often ask, you know, how do you how do we draw our maps in the office? We mostly use butcher paper and we just you know draw out our ba- battle maps, uh, throw down our bases. You know, if we mm. have miniatures, we use them. If we don't, we don't. We use the cutout bases. Um, you know, one of the bonuses working in a miniatures gaming company is you have a lot of miniatures around. Yeah, but uh, not everybody does. And uh, you know, while we think it adds a little bit to the game to have you know cool representations for your guys, we don't expect people to go out and you know bodge together 20 city watchmen for their uh, their one encounter <laughs> so you, know, you print out your bases maybe you uh do a little drawing on there or you just number them or something and uh, it's pretty easy to use will you be um is there also going to be uh more miniatures support or like some box sets that represent say just a selection of the types of characters that will exist that would be useful for the iron kingdom setting but may not be applicable to the war, war game directly or things like um, that Right now, we do still have our old Iron Kingdoms uh, miniatures line, but we're not currently planning on expanding that. But, uh, you know, one of the things we did in the, the introductory adventure that uh, I was talking about earlier, mm. uh, we had cut out standees. So yeah. that we just offer as printouts. So it's possible, you know, as we publish more adventures, we may do more stuff like that as, uh, as you know, digital extras, things like that. I was going to ask about those, because I think, um, you know, I think that's a really nice route to represent lots of, you know, grunts. <laughs> For a, sure. uh, that you want to kill, and obviously, you know, if people want to invest in miniatures for the 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 the, the main characters and some badass that they're after, some then you know it makes it the best of all worlds. What else have we got in store? So, um, is there any plans for any novels in the future to kind of pad out the Iron Kingdoms? Um, um, can we expect that? I don't know what the deal with that is at this time. You know, we're we're definitely we know our audience would love to read some novels. Um, it's definitely mm. a possible thing we could be doing in the future, but right now I don't have any information about it. Okay. Um, and I do know that there is a computer game in development, but that's in development, which is generally, you, there's nothing really to say, just that yeah, it's no, there's not in much, development. Not much information. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Uh, Mike, any other things you want to finish up with? Uh, I was kind of curious if you guys might be doing anything with cards. It doesn't sound like it, but... Uh, one of the cool things about the War Machine and Hordes tabletop games is mm. that uh, you use cards to uh, keep track of the stats for your monsters and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it seems like it would be great uh, for a uh, for a game master to have like a set of cards for all the different creatures that might be in an encounter, that kind of stuff. Well, actually, if you go to the downloads page, like I said, uh, there is a game master's sheet that basically uh, <clears throat> it has a pre- unfilled field with all that information for the GM to use. So... Uh, well, it's not yeah. exactly a card. It's laid out. That that information is laid out there in multiples for uh, basically that specific use. Yeah, Mike. Um, uh, I say flicking to the back of my book here. Um, essentially, you know the 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 life spiral that's used in hordes. Yeah. 
that's the way it works for characters. Yeah, okay? I saw that. That's a really cool idea. So, so there's a page at the back which uh, is obviously available digitally. So you can list what one, two, twelve creatures and have their vitality and status effects, and then you have um, because you don't use the life spirals for for um, for grunts, but then you've got life spirals for actual named you know antagonists. So you've got a sheet that okay. you can print off, which has room for everything. So um, it's essentially a cut-down way of representing characters, which is great. Sounds good. And also, something I was going to say, can we expect some uh, nice uh, apps through, uh, you know, for the iPhone and Android? Because um, something that a friend of mine told me, because they're actually playing some War Machine right now with my miniatures I left back in the UK. I, do- I donated them while I moved country. Um, they've got the, uh, the the War Room app, which uh, essentially allows you to digitally manage your armies for War Machine and Horde. So can we expect possibly apps for th- that are useful within uh, the roleplay game for, again, like management of characters and or uh, for games masters to manage their, chron- uh, their, well, their campaign? Uh, I don't have specific information on anything like this time, but uh, you know, War Room was definitely a very big success for us and continues to be. So, uh, ah, great. we are definitely exploring uh, ideas. But uh, at this time, I don't know. We don't really have anything lined up at this point, but uh, I expect that's going to change at some point down the road. Great. And of course, the one thing I wanted to say is that Colossals um, is insane because that came out <laughs> relatively recently. That's just June. the minutes out of that are just brilliant. So. Um... Yeah. So, is there? I'm, I'm going to guess there might be something of that magnitude, possibly for hordes. I'd hate to see what giant monsters. Oh, we've already the gargantuans. We've already started releasing. Oh yeah, them. yeah. For the trolls came out uh, September. Ah right. Oh, I, yeah, there's so much I need to catch up on. Really. Um, yeah. And that book, gargantuans, will be out. Yeah, the book will be out in March, along with a whole bunch of other new hordes models that we'll, you'll start seeing early next year. Brilliant. Oh, and the We're other thing. We're already working on the uh, the next big thing for War Machine, so there's some cool stuff coming down the road for uh, our miniatures gamers as well. Uh, and of course, if you're if you're just an RPG guy, uh, those books will have a lot of cool background and history and setting. Um, that uh, you know, I think it has some application to the RPG. Cool, Mike. Any last things there? Uh, not really. Definitely excited to check this stuff out. Hmm. Oh wait. <laughs> We do I, have see, one I see what you're doing right there. Okay. <laughs> Simon, we have a question that we ask every guest the first time they're on the show. Yes. So, if you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? It's sort of a tie between, you know, the utility of my coffee maker or the refrigerator where I keep my beer. Mm. Um, being able to self-supply either of those would be really good, although I suppose the uh, the refrigerator requires me to put the beer in it. So the coffee maker is probably the more utilitarian uh, answer. I would go with coffee maker as well, because then you could actually just put alcohol in the coffee as well. That's an excellent point. Cafe Coretto is the way forward. <laughs> anyway, that's brilliant. Yes, coffee maker. I think everyone should know that's what I would choose as well. I think uh, I think it's a brilliant choice. <laughs> cool. Um, so, Mike, uh, I guess that's everything. So. Um, Simon, do you have any particular websites and places we sh- you should you would like to plug, and things that uh, if people want to contact you or any events that are coming up that people should be aware of? 
Uh, you know, for all of that stuff, the best place to go is actually privateerpress.com and mm-hmm. uh, Privateer Press on Facebook, which you can find just from searching for us. And uh, if you want to stay up to date yeah. on what we're doing there, or at Privateer Press uh, on Twitter. Those you have a Google Plus are... as well. Yes, we also are on Google yes. Plus. <laughs> uh, you know, if you type Privateer Plus is, is, you know, any of our homes on the web is the best place to stay up to date on what we've got going on. We have new events coming out. You know, if you're really excited and in getting into even the role-playing game, I recommend checking out our, uh, our press gang volunteer program. Uh, you know, those so much of our success has been because of our volunteers who demo uh, all of our games all over the world, you know, get new people excited. Um, and having been a former press ganger myself, I just say it's, it's a blast and a great program to be a participant in. Um, we've got some really exciting stuff coming up for those guys uh, in the next couple of years. And it's just it's, it's a great time to be a, a privateer player, I think. Cool. It's also important to bring up that uh, when Simon is not wearing his pirate hat, he's actually wearing a gas mask and adventuring huh. in the unhallowed metropolis. Yes, uh, myself and Jason Souls, who is the lead developer of the Iron Kingdoms role-playing game, uh, and our co-creator, Nicole Vega, uh, we mm. worked on a game called Unhallowed Metropolis, the uh, gas mask chic role-playing game of neo-Victorian horror. Uh, sort of a neo-Victorian zombie apocalypse, and uh, I can't get into that too much today, but uh, I'd be happy to come back and talk to you guys about that some other time. Oh, yes, please. Um, that's, basically, <laughs> I have two two books that have been that I'm going through slowly and happen to be written, well, that you've been involved in. Uh, I was also going to note that um, uh, you also, both of those books share um, the same artwork by, uh, is it Brian's? Brian uh, Snowdy's worked on both of those. Yeah, books. yeah. So, um, yeah, again, that it just shows... Um, that the great quality of artwork uh, and design um, appears in both of those role-play games. So, again, if people are familiar with the one, they should really look at the other um, for the for the artwork and uh, what's in there. Great. Cool. All right, Simon. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy Friday to uh, come pleasure. on the show and speak with us. Um, of course, if anyone wants to get in t- contact with Darker Days Radio, uh, check out our Facebook or uh, send us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Um, we'd uh, love to hear your, any feedback on this show or any general World of Darkness stuff. So uh, with that, I think that's the end of the show. Yep. It's been Thanks a so much, pleasure. Guys. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Cheers.